Peace be upon you. So the expression to game the system means to manipulate or exploit the rules and processes of a system to one's advantage, often in a way that wasn't intended or is considered unfair. It's like finding a loophole to win a game, get ahead in a competition, or benefit from a situation even if it goes against the spirit of the rules. Gaming the system usually implies that someone is using clever and sometimes sneaky tactics to achieve goals, often at the expense of others or at the integrity of the system itself. In the case of Hadith, the credibility of any Hadith among Sunnis lays heavily on the Isnad, and the Isnad is the chain of transmitters for any narration. And the belief is that the shorter the Isnad appears, the more credibility that Hadith holds in the weight of the people. So a common form of gaming was trying to make the chain of narrators appear as short as possible. So God willing, in this episode, we're going to look at some of these sneaky tactics that transmitters and compilers of Hadith utilize in order to give the illusion that their chains were much shorter than they actually were. Before we get into that, though, it's worth understanding what the criteria was as far as what they considered a valid transmission. So on the very loose end, you would have people who would get Hadith books and they would just transcribe from them and then claim that they got it from the original source. But if you look at the two most revered Hadith scholars uh, among Sunnis, which is Bukhari who died in 265 Hijra and Muslim who died in 261, we find that even among them, their requirements for what's considered a valid transmission uh, varies. So for example, Bukhari believed that for a hadith to be considered connected uh, in Sahih, that it had to be proven that both people who transmitted and received the tradition not only lived uh, at the same time period, but met one another. Muslim, on the other hand, thought it was sufficient if the transmitter and the recipient simply lived in the same time period, irrespective if it's ever proven that they actually met from one another. So a lot of the hadith that Muslim uh, labeled as Sahih, by Bukhari standard, would not be Sahih, it would be Hassan, good at best. But despite Bukhari and Muslim using more stringent criteria than most, even if we went with Bukhari's criteria, there is no guarantee that these two people, even if they met, that they transmitted one hadith from one person to the other. You know, who's to say they didn't just meet, shake hands, and talk about something else? We're supposed to believe that just because they simply met that they must have transmitted the said hadith. Now, there's no proof of that, but it gets even more wonky. You know, consider back then, some of the most eminent hadith uh, teachers, they would have fill assembly halls with potentially thousands of people. Now, back then, they didn't have speakers, they didn't have PA systems. So how would a person in the back of the assembly hall, right, who's not this is sitting more than 20 feet away from the uh, actual teacher, be able to hear the hadith clearly? What they would do is throughout the assembly, they would have individuals who would repeat what the, the uh, teacher said to those audience members within their vicinity. Now, when someone is transcribing their isnad, they're not including this transmitter, right? They're saying they got it directly from the teacher himself. And that's the reason if you look at Abu Hanifa, his criteria for what he considers to be a valid transmission is that he believes that not only did the two people have to be proved that they met, but it has to be proven that they heard it directly from the mouth of the other individual and that they fully understood it and memorized the hadith and then got the approval to transmit the hadith from that teacher. 
Now, if we apply this criteria, virtually no hadith would ever be considered sahih because that's not how it was done. They were more interested in reducing their chain of transmitters and using this kind of gaming system to try to have more credibility among the people. Now, an even more dubious practice committed by some of these hadith compilers and transmitters is they would use certain wording and they would imply that they heard it directly from the source when they didn't hear it from the source. They would use the term akhbarna, which means he reported to us, or they would say hadithana, which means he narrated to us when narrating hadith that wasn't narrated directly from that individual. So for instance, Al-Hasan al-Basri on many occasions says, Hadathana Abu Huraira, which translates to Abu Huraira narrated to us. Except Al-Hasan did not live in the same time period of Abu Huraira. So what he was saying is that no, Abu Huraira, he, you know, kind of metaphorically narrated to us. Like it's a narration that came from him, not that I heard it from him. And you'll see this replete inside the Hadith corpus, where a lot of times people will just say, oh, he narrated to us, he reported to us. Uh, similarly, other masters of Hadith would use the word Hadathana in connection with companions, intending to convey that the people of the cities where the companions narrated, uh, that they heard it from the companion themselves, even though that's not the case. So they would say that you know Ibn Abbas narrated to us, even though the person never actually heard it from Ibn Abbas. It would be implied because he narrated to the people of that community. The reason that Hadith transmitters did these kind of tactics is because they wanted to avoid a broken chain, which refers to a gap or an omission in the chain of transmitters for their Hadith. And they knew that if they had a chain, it would basically signify weakness in their Hadith. So they would conveniently you know, do these kind of workarounds to try to hide that defect. Now what's conveniently peculiar is one of the omissions that's totally acceptable among even the Sahih compilations is that if there is a omission between the companion that's being attributed to the Hadith and the Prophet himself, meaning that there was some intermediary companion in between those two, they say, oh, that's totally fine. So for instance, uh, Ibn Abbas, the fifth most prolific narrator of Hadith, he's presumed to have been born in 619, making him no more than 13 years old when the Prophet died. Yet he had 1,660 Hadith attributed to him. Abdullah ibn Umar, was presumed to be born in 610, making him no more than 23 years old when the Prophet died. Yet he has 2,630 narrations attributed to him. And the most prolific narrator of Hadith, Abu Huraira, he has 5,374 narrations attributed to him. Yet he only joined the Muslims in Medina during the last two to three years of the Prophet's life. And what's the chance that this guy all of a sudden became such a close companion with the Prophet? You know, a simple example of showing that Abu Huraira was narrating events that he wasn't even there for. So, for example, in the Hadith corpus, it claims that Abu Huraira joined the Muslims after the Battle of Khaybar, and that's in 628 CE. Yet there's a Hadith in Sahih Muslim 115 that gives a testimony, a first-hand testimony of the battle. If Abu Huraira was not present for this battle, then he must have got the narration from someone else, if one is to even entertain the possibility that this is an authentic narration. But these kinds of omissions in the Sahih standard is considered, oh, it's fine because Abu Huraira is a trusted source. But again, you see, these are different tactics that they use to try to make their isnad seem shorter and shorter. 
So they're bending all kinds of rules to give this illusion that they're, you know, the, the, from when this narration was compiled and written to when it actually took place, that there was just a few handful of people who transmitted this. It's nonsense. You know, a significant tool in determining the authenticity of Isnad is knowing the birth and death of an individual in the chain of transmitters. This information will indicate that two people in the chain of transmitters at a minimum lived in the same time period that they could possibly transmit one hadith to the other. But the problem with this is that even among the most uh, prominent individuals of the Muslim Ummah, there's debates to when they were born and when they died. And if it's questionable regarding the most prominent individuals, how less credible is it for some no-name individual in someone's chain of transmitters? So for example, the Prophet himself, right? We have all these hadith from the Prophet. Uh, there's conflicting reports to how long he was alive for, how many years he spent in Mecca, how many years he spent in Medina, what year he died. How old was Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman when they died? But these individuals were not prolific narrators of hadith, you know, minus Aisha, who has a lot of hadith attributed to her. Uh, but take Abu Huraira. Again, they don't know exactly when he died. Uh, take Imam Malik, who wrote the, the Muwatta. They don't know when he was born, and we'll get to why that's important. There's about a 10-year period that they're estimating he was born somewhere in those 10 years. Uh, or Zuhri, who's another prominent uh, Hadith transmitter, uh, they don't know when he died. And these are important dates. So if you don't know it for the most prolific transmitters of Hadith, the most uh, you know notable figures of Islamic history, again, how less reliable is it for these no-name individuals who you know have these Hadith attributed to them? Uh, as far as when it was that they lived and when it was that they died. And the reason that it's important to know when they were born just as much as when they, were, uh, when they died is because Hadith sciences, there is an age requirement uh, for uh, identifying you know, that they're actually mature enough to transmit Hadith. And you would say, okay, you want to make sure that the person is actually of age who's going to be transmitting the Hadith. And this typically means that they should be mentally mature, capable of understanding and accurately transmitting the Hadith. The exact age at which one is considered mature can vary in different contexts and among scholars, but it generally aligns with the age at which a person is considered an adult in their society. However, a common practice was to include the names of children deemed to be five years or older in the books as authorized recipients of traditions. So for instance, they would have this assembly, again, thousands of people, Anyone who is five years and older, they would write their name that, yes, they were in this assembly hall and they heard this hadith from this transmitter. Now I'm going to read from the book, Studies in Hadith Methodology and Literature by Azami. This is page 23. It says, people began to bring even their infants to the lectures on hadith. The attendance of a child at such lectures entitled him to a certificate which gave the name of the child if he was under five as proof that he attended the lectures. But if a child was five or more, it was mentioned in the certificate that he learned certain books from certain scholars. This practice, according to which a child of five years was awarded a certificate of matriculation or graduation in Hadith sounds like a joke. But as a matter of fact, the case is not so ridiculous as it seems and the practice was not as silly as it appears to be. The fact that he has to clarify that this doesn't sound silly and ridiculous. No, it does sound silly and ridiculous because what ends up happening is they would get their names attributed to these uh, to, that they heard from this scholar. But because we don't have records to how old they actually were, 
right? We can't tell were they five years old or 25 years old. That becomes severely problematic because now that child, right, can narrate from that individual even though when he heard the lecture, he was five years old. So it's one thing to know that the transmitter is only five years old. It's another one. It's unclear if the transmitter, when he originally heard this, was five years old or not. You know, it's very likely that someone might have heard the Hadith when they were a child and not of sound mind, but later on be taught that the Hadith at an older age and make their Isnad back to that original scholar that they were sitting at when they were five years old. You know, for example, Abdul Razak was an 8th century Yemeni Hadith scholar who compiled a Hadith collection known as the Musanaf of Abdul Razak. And when he died in 211 after Hijra at the age of 80, his student, Ishaq ibn Ibrahim al-Dabri, who transmitted his work, was only 7 years old. So how is this possible? Is this child a prodigy that at 7 years old he was able to memorize and transmit you know, his entire Musanaf of Abdul Razak? No. What realistically happened is his father knew the Hadith and his father wanted to use his son's name in order to extend that Isnad because his son's going to outlive him. And this is the whole appeal. This is the whole way they game the system. They try to find ways to reduce the number of transmitters in a chain to make it appear that it's much shorter than it actually is. And one of the most comical examples of this is that if you look through the, the, the Sahih corpus, what you find is that a large number of the transmitters are sanitarians. These are people who lived past 100 years old. How convenient that, you know, you have it from one 100-year-old to another 100-year-old to another 100-year-old. So it gives the illusion that, again, this Isnad is way shorter than it is. That right when one is about to die, oh, they pass it on to the next transmitter and he lives to be 100. And Joshua Little uh, pointed this in his uh, talk. He says, evidence for this motivation is that these longer living narrators appear to be more prolific from Hadith originating in Kufa. The reason for this is that these areas, the companions of the Prophet who resided there, died relatively soon after the Prophet. So again, their objective is how do we get back to the companion with as short of a gap as possible? And once they can get to the companion, they can say the companion heard it directly from the Prophet. So if we look at the, the companions that resided in Kufa, we realize that they, they, they died relatively young. So therefore, they needed to find a clever way to shorten their isnas. Otherwise, their hadith would not be considered as sound. So it makes no sense as a product of genuine historical transmission that people lived just way longer in Kufa than they did in the rest of the Islamic world. The historian Junbal wrote an article on this subject entitled The Role of the Mumma Marun which covers the extremely long-lived people who are inserted into the chains to close gaps in the Hadith transmission. Now, a famous Hadith transmitter who took this concept of, you know, shortening their Isnad to a whole nother level was the most prominent Hadith transmitter of his time, uh, Al-Tabrani, uh, who was born in 260 uh, Hijra, so just shortly after the death of Bukhari. He narrated volumes and volumes of Hadith, and at that time, this concept of like Sahih narrations was considered kind of pompous. Most people, they were more interested in the vast volume of Hadith that they can narrate. To put this in perspective, another Hadith scholar, uh, Bin Mansur, stated that he narrated 300,000 Hadith from Imam Tabarani alone. So in the book, uh, Muhammad's Legacy in Medieval and Modern World by Jonathan Brown, on page 49, it reads, while 9th century scholars like Bukhari generally narrated by Isnads of 4, 5, 6, or 7 transmitters to the Prophet, 
and in Bukhari's case, 28 instances where he narrated from only three, Tabarani, in his hadith, regularly narrated hadith with four-person isnad. And in one case, we find him narrating a hadith with only three people. Now, as if that's not ridiculous enough that someone in that time period is regularly narrating with four, and at one instance, three transmitters, he conveniently lived for guess how long? 100 years. He was transmitting hadith for 100 years before he supposedly passed in the year 360 Hijra. So by having the very oldest transmitter transmit the tradition to the youngest children before their death approaches allows them to have the shortest possible isnad back to the Prophet. And again, if they can get it back to a companion, they can say, hey, the companion got it directly from the Prophet and again, avoid the possibility that the companion heard it from another companion. And a clear example of uh, showing that Hadith transmitters game the system this way is that the Hadith that are considered the most authentic more often than not have Isnads transmitted generationally and not laterally within a given generation among peers of the same age group. So for example, Muslim did not narrate from his teacher Bukhari. Right? Nor did any of the compilers of the Sita, Ibn Majah, Abu Dawood, uh, Al-Tirmidhi, Al-Nasai, narrate from each other despite all them being contemporaries. Right? You would never have someone uh, narrate from a contemporary when they can go to an older source because it's to their advantage to basically, again, reduce that Isnad. So even though that Muslim was a student of Bukhari, his compilation does not have one hadith transmitted through Bukhari. Now, another prominent method to game the Isnad and appear to make it shorter than it actually was, was something called Ejazah. Ejazah meant permission for transmission. And on page 45 of Hadith uh, Muhammad's Legacy in Medieval and Modern World, uh, we read, Ejazah for transmission meant that instead of reading an entire Hadith collection in the presence of an authorized transmitter, a student might only read part of it and receive permission from the teacher to transmit the rest. So it's saying that, you know, they would read part from the teacher and then they would ask, hey, can I have permission to read the rest? And they would give them permission. Although it was a less rigorous form of authentication, Ijazah still provided scholars with isnads for books. So meaning that they could take the book, write down the isnad as if they heard it directly from the individual and understood it. And it continues, although this practice existed in some forms, even in the 9th century, by the 1000s, it had become very common. Al-Hakim Nayaspuri, author of the massive Mustadarak, thus gave a group of students an ijazah to transmit works provided they could secure well-written copies of them. Of course, if you could get an ijazah for a book you had, not actually read in the presence of a teacher, you could get ijazahs for any number of books that the teacher was able to transmit. So the teacher has a number of ijazahs from someone else, that he could pass on to his students to get. So now you have a system where people can have the authority to transmit from a book that they've never met the actual person who wrote that book. This led to the practice of acquiring a general ijazah for all the books a teacher had. In the 1000s, many scholars also accepted the practice of getting ijazahs from teachers one had not actually met at all through writing letters. This ijazah for the non-present person meant that the scholars could acquire ijazahs for their infant children or even for children not yet born. So you have individuals writing letters to other individuals 
who basically have permission to transmit some narration that they got permission from from some other individuals and they would give that permission to their infants or unborn children. Now you have to ask, why would they do this? What is the benefit of getting this permission for not only your child, but your unborn child? Is because now you can shorten that it's not even further. You know, naturally the child is going to outlive the parent. And if they can transmit from these individuals and have written permission from them, it's as if they heard it directly from that individual. And this is the way that they would game the system. And this was a common practice among Hadith transmitters. So we see that their gaming of the system, their quest for shorter Isnad revealed the length to which some transmitters and compilers went to enhance the credibility of their traditions. The temptation to take hadith and find ways to create new shorter isnads to make their narration of tradition the focus of learning was just too high. Individuals motivated by gaining prominence and authority for having their traditions that were narrated through them as opposed to someone else resorted to subtle and not so subtle manipulations of the isnad to create ever more concise and uninterrupted chains of narrators for their hadith. As stated, by the second century scholar of Hadith, Yahya bin Sayyid al-Katan, regarding the transmitters of Hadith, he stated, I have not seen more falsehood in anyone than in those who have a reputation for goodness. All this just shows that this newly found reverence that people have towards these Hadith compilers, that this is all a charade. You know, this Isna that they put so much dependence on, these are just individuals gaming the system, trying to create more credibility for their traditions, despite the fact that God has given zero authority to any of these people for what they commit. And God willing, want to end with a verse. This is Surah 6, verse 93. It says, Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God, or says, I've received divine inspiration? when no such inspiration was given to him, or says, I can write the same as God's revelations. If only you could see the transgressors at the time of death. The angels extend their hands to them, saying, Let go of your souls. Today you have incurred a shameful retribution for saying about God other than the truth and for being too arrogant to accept his revelations. The fact of the matter is, the only source of religious law we have is this Quran. These fabricated uh, narrations that they claim are divine inspiration from the prophet are nothing of the sort. And we see that despite that the content of these narrations are bogus, that their isnad are just as flimsy. So again, next time someone says that, hey, we have to trust the isnad, realize that what they're selling you is a bag of lies. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, you can join us on Discord. The invite link to our server is below. If you want to better understand the Quran, you can download the Quran Study app on the iOS App Store. Uh, if you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want to get notes from today's discussion, you can go to Quran Talk blog. I also add these to the bottom in the notes section. And if you want to get updates as far as what's going on and just other interesting uh, tidbits, uh, definitely follow me on Twitter. And until next time, peace and God bless.